Welcome back to the Pactum Factum podcast, the superpower of everyday negotiation. I'm Lucia Cantor, St. Amour. Negotiation is everywhere, every day. This is the negotiation laboratory where we share insights into basic skills, strategy, history, storytelling, behavioral sciences, and social trends. It's all connected. We are all connected. And everyone can learn how to better negotiate everyday life with keen eyes, hearts, and minds. Thanks for joining us. For those of you paying close attention to this podcast, Dad, I'm talking to you. You may notice that a bunch of episodes are broadcasting in fairly close succession here at the nascent phase. Don't get used to it. Here's my plan. I think, subject to change. I'm front-loading about a half a dozen episodes as sort of proof of concept and also because there are a few basic topics I want to establish as a foundation of the superpower of everyday negotiation so that we can build from there. Plus, after 25 plus years of living and breathing this subject, I've got quite a lot of material to get through, not to mention incorporating ongoing developments and just so many other ideas. So I'm jumping in. By about episode 8 to 10, I hope to introduce you to a co-host and we can settle into a more measured broadcasting schedule, maybe once or twice a month. We'll see. It's my podcast, so I can do whatever I want. Love that. Okay, let's get to it. For the 10 years I taught negotiation at UC Hastings College of the Law and UC Berkeley Law, I assigned my students the task of submitting a planning memo before each simulated negotiation exercise. Now, I'll level with you. They considered this tedious busy work, to which I would say, and still do if they're listening, you're welcome. Entering into a negotiation without preparation or a plan is like walking into a casino with an open wallet. Even when I could discern from the contents of my students' memos that they approached it as a perfunctory check-the-box exercise, I didn't particularly care. They were still developing an important habit. Generally, I recommended that they use the Appendix B Planning Guide that G. Richard Schell offers in his book Bargaining for Advantage, which was also an assigned text and an excellent primer on negotiation, and he includes some great anecdotes, too. This and the next episode will discuss some aspects of that guide, supplemented by other sources and my own notes from experience over the years. I've organized it into 10 steps, but just listening to those steps isn't adequate. It's no different from sitting on the sofa while watching the workout video. You need to actually perform the push-ups to reap the results. Hunker down and do the work of fleshing out each step in writing. You're like, oh, do I have to? No, you don't have to do anything. Unlike my law students, I'm not grading you. If something doesn't resonate with you, you are free to reject it. Step one, context, players, and problem statement or issue identification. Consider the context of this negotiation. Would you consider it high stakes? Richard Schell breaks negotiation into four categories relationship, transactional, 
balanced concerns, which is a hybrid of the first two categories, and tacit coordination. This is you at the four-way stop sign in your car or not eating the last cookie so you don't get in trouble with your spouse. So is preserving the relationship important? Is it purely transactional? Is it a hybrid of transactional and relationship? Which conflict mode would be most effective for the context? Although I have a blog issue on conflict mode, we haven't gotten to that yet in this podcast, but we will. This first step should also include an effort to define the problem or problems, issues at stake, and create a list of issues or agenda for the negotiation. It's easy to lose track of issues once you're in the thick of it. Think about comparing your problem statement with the other side in advance and setting an agenda of the issues all parties wish to cover. This can save time at the outset of bargaining and minimize frustrations from cropping up right out of the gate. At least you'll be on the same page to start. Find out who will be participating in the negotiation and do some internet sleuthing. Where are they from? What is their background and education? What makes them tick? Do you both like dogs? What other commonalities or potential obstacles can you discover? This step will also help build rapport, as we discussed in our last episode. Step two, interests. People often come to the bargaining table expressing positions. What the celebrated negotiation scholars and authors Roger Fisher and William Urey have preached for years is the importance of getting past the stated positions to the underlying interests. That is, piercing the what to get to the why it's important to them. Develop different types, concrete, psychological, and procedural interests and consider whether they might be shared interests with the other side, conflicting or ancillary. Actually make a list, mine and theirs, which would be known or guesses. Step three, specific goals. Too many people approach a negotiation with a goal of doing the best I can. That is not a goal. Vague and unprincipled goals lead to lackluster results. Richard Schell teaches us that negotiators who develop high, specific, justifiable goals accomplish about 40% better results than negotiators with amorphous goals. Let's break this down. High means a starting point that you can communicate with a straight face, but one that you don't realistically expect to achieve. Leave yourself room to make concessions and show the other side that you have come their direction. People like to feel that the outcome of a negotiation was hard won. So counteroffers do serve an important purpose in the negotiation dance. Specific means crunching numbers for a precise calculation as well as any other attributes needed to make your goal durable and practical. This is the who, what, when, where, and how. Justifiable means that when you are asked how you arrived at that demand, you can refer to objective standards and metrics to back it up. This works both ways. When the other side presents their offer, you should always ask, how did you come up with that? You also need to know what your reservation point, also known as bottom line, is. That is, the point at which you walk away from the bargaining table because no deal 
is better than a bad deal. This includes what Fisher and Urey call BATNA, understanding what your best alternative to a negotiated agreement is. That is, if you can't get a deal, what's your best backup plan? You should also consider your WATNA, worst alternative, and MALATNA, most likely alternative to a negotiated agreement. Step four, authoritative standards and norms. Objective standards and norms are those that neither party can manipulate. Why should you look to these? Well, it makes the negotiation principled. It helps you defend a position, helps you avoid appearing weak or arbitrary, and builds trust because you are referencing external standards. Some examples would be replacement cost, make whole, competitor's price, community practice, scientific merit, depreciated book value, precedent, or what a court would decide, or recent jury verdicts. Be specific about standards or objective criteria that will favor you, standards you believe they will use, and think about how to work with the other side's standards or convince them that yours are more relevant or appropriate. You can make another chart with three columns, mine, theirs, and counter-arguments. Step five, leverage. Assess who you think has more leverage going into the negotiation. I'm going to spend some time on this one and then we'll call it quits for today. Power and leverage are not synonymous, but are often articulated interchangeably. Who has more power in the negotiation? Who has leverage? How can that leverage be influenced? Well, what's the difference? Power is the strength, ability, or resources to do something or act in a particular way subtext, a way that can also control other people or outcomes. Leverage is having something that someone else wants or needs, and thus the ability to influence power, subtext, to impact other people or outcomes. Consider the massive real estate developer who has successfully purchased all but one tiny home in the area designated for a client's new medical research campus. That home is owned by an 80-year-old woman in good health, so she's presumably not going anywhere, whose grandfather built the house, who was raised there and raised her own family there. She has communicated to the developer that there is no price they can put on that house. It's simply not for sale. She's just a quote-unquote little old lady, and they are the big, powerful developer. But she's got the leverage. Many of us are parents. Kids are great natural negotiators. They are relentless about what they want, highly motivated to get it, unconcerned about you saying no, persistent, and imaginative. As between us and our three-year-old child, which was many years ago now for me, we are the more powerful party. We are bigger, stronger, have a more developed brain, more experience, and better command of our fine and gross motor skills to accomplish tasks. But if you want your child to eat their peas, the child has the leverage. Sure, you can use threats and bribes. I'm not going to pretend that carrots and sticks aren't useful implements in the parental toolbox. But ultimately, you cannot force the child to eat the peas. Only they can do so. They've got you in the crosshairs, and it's really a test of your own temperament, behavior, and strategy how you respond. 
not only might your ego be on the line, I can't let them win this one, I need to maintain who's in charge, but shaping future behaviors might be on your mind. If I surrender on the P's, what am I signaling? I lose credibility and they'll learn they don't have to listen to me in the future. Leverage is nuanced and can be a real thorn in the side of the more powerful party at the bargaining table when they don't have it. Now for the punchline. Leverage can shift. The party who starts with it doesn't necessarily hold on to it. Perhaps there's a way for the real estate developer to affect conditions to change the situation. For example, start the demolition on the properties surrounding our little old lady, creating conditions so intolerable that she finally caves. Perhaps you can use a third party as an influencer. That favorite uncle who your child constantly imitates happens to be visiting for dinner and delightfully dower, devours their peas, exclaiming how good and healthy and strong peas make them feel, causing your child to gobble down their peas so they can be just like Uncle Mark. Or maybe ask yourself, what makes it so important to you that your child eat the peas? Can you let it go? Can you substitute the peas for something else that would satisfy the interest at stake and you can both get on with life? This gets to another secret in plain sight of negotiation. After the planning is complete and you are in the thick of it, remain agile. Often new information is presented through the course of the negotiation. Pay attention. You may need to take a break to develop additional options or conduct more research. You may need to adjust your expectations or your bottom line accordingly. Assimilating, after validating it, that new information and assessing how it impacts your options and possibly shifts leverage is one of the unsung superpowers of great negotiators. Especially these days when it seems people's opinions are expressed as incontrovertible fact and they are just the opposite of open-minded or flexible about new or different information. You can read a dedicated blog on that topic on the pactumfactum.com website. The point is leverage is dynamic and can be a shell game in negotiation, so keep your eye on the moving ball. For an entertaining depiction of shifting leverage, watch the 2003 film Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl. Finally, a word of caution. Don't make the rookie mistake of underestimating anyone, especially little old ladies. They've lived a long life. They've seen things. They've had experiences you haven't. They know things. Respect to little old ladies everywhere. I think that's enough for now, but you won't have to wait long for planning part two. I know the suspense is unbearable. Thanks for listening, or even partially listening while you multitask. You never know what might stick with you. Keep your ear out for this space because we sure do appreciate your company. I'm Lucia Cantor St. Amour of Pactum Factum, which is Latin for a done deal. You can find me here on Substack and on pactumfactum.com.